Welcome, friends, to another episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. This is your host, Dr. Jack Chuang, and uh, today is, uh, is it still Monday, May, May yes. 17th, and my lovely co-host, A. Kine, uh, retired social worker. Just, just call me A. That's good enough. Oh, okay. She's also you, my better. She's also my better half. See, not all my guests call me honey, but that would be, be, be pretty funny if everybody comes on and says, hi, honey. That's like, okay. No. But you know, in Texas, Only I can call you honey. A lot of times we do go to places and people, you know, just out of Southern hospitality go, hey, sugar, what are you ordering today? <laughs> so, so maybe if you call me honey every week, people may not know, you know, like, oh, maybe that's a Southern thing. <laughs> okay, but, sugar. Yeah. But uh, yeah, sugar. Remember one of your ex coworkers used to call me sugar, sugar lips? lips? I don't know. That was weird. That was so weird. Anyway, so okay, if you're a first what time. What are you talking about? Anyway, if you're a first time listener, thanks for joining us. Um, if you're listening to this podcast as your first episode and you're thinking this is called Psychology Concepts Explained and why is it a bunch of chit chat? And what's his then, wife then, doing there? Then, what's, my, what's his wife doing? Is it a family <laughs> show? Then you should scroll down all the way to the beginning episode of season one. Yes, there are seasons, like, like a TV show. And you'll see psychology lectures that are designed for intro to psych students and lifespan psychology students. And I've also been told by other listeners that they, these are also helpful for preparing for uh, entrance exams that cover... Uh, psychology, like the MCAT has a behavioral sciences section or the GRE graduate record exam to apply for graduate school in psychology. So that all of this introductory psych material might be helpful. And uh, by the way, we do have listeners from all around the world. So we're very grateful for that. And last week, my wife, A, joined me. Since this has been a solo show for a whole year, I, it was decided that you know, and I feel like just talking to myself isn't always a lot of fun. <laughs> so yeah, I think it livens things up when you're here. Thank you, honey. Oh, you can say more than just thank you, honey, for the whole time. But uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're, it's middle of May. We're, we're trying to make plans for the summer and, you know, just feeling, uh, what's the term? Um, cabin, cabin fever. fever cabin fever yeah we're I, I've traveling been feeling that since last year i know since the pandemic <laughs> began basically or since we just came back to the u.s <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> where's where's our return ticket? where's our where's our return if i had ticket? my way I, we would be back yeah and we've talked about this a lot i think for us you know we're, we're tossing around the idea of because we don't have a home base for ourselves yet right because mm -hmm. we live overseas, we came back and we thought it was going to be temporary. And, uh, and we're stuck here now because the pandemic can't, we can't go places. So yeah, it's a bummer. So instead, yeah. we decided to go explore Texas state parks. Yeah, we have the Texas state park. And then we pass. had to move from Arlington to Houston. Yeah, yeah. And so we're... And then there was a freeze. Yeah, there was the freeze. <laughs> and there now. was a roof. And there was the air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, we're spending a lot of money here, but yeah. uh, no complaints. <laughs> it's it's our rent money, basically. Um, yeah, so this week, um, the, earlier this morning, I interviewed Dr. Richard Nisbet, 
And I, I didn't realize we we're going to talk for an hour. I thought it was going to be 30 minutes. But then when I click record on Zoom, it doesn't really have a recording time, you know? It has yeah. a session clock, which is really tiny in the upper right-hand corner, but it doesn't have like a big clock saying it's been recording for so many minutes. And I didn't really keep track of exactly when we started. And then by the time we're done, I thought it was half an hour, but we spoke for an hour. Yeah, and, I, I actually, we, we listened, to, listened mm-hmm. to it together and I thought yeah. it was a very interesting interview. I don't want to give away too much, but I yeah. thought it was very interesting. <clears throat> yeah, and frankly, I was very nervous because... I look up to researchers like Dr. Nisbet um, mm-hmm. because going through graduate school and also <laughs> teaching social psych undergrad classes, that was, that was the first class that I taught as a social psych grad student was, you know, undergrad social psych. I didn't even, didn't even teach intro to psych until I got into the community college system and started teaching. So way back when, that's, that's really my area. And so I saw his name everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. as, as well as, and then when I went through his memoir, his book, it was interesting because it's kind of like meeting celebrities in real life kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and whereas these are names that appear in all these journal articles and, and they've done well-known experiments and come up with these very famous concepts that are in textbook after textbook. Mm-hmm. And to read his memoir on how, oh, so-and-so was my best friend. And then, um, you know, so-and-so was my advisor. And, and these are like some of the founding fathers, early generation of the field of social psych. You know what I mean? So who, who was the psychologist that you met? I was there. Dr. Um, Philip Zimbardo. Zimbardo, Philip Zim- yeah. Philip Zimbardo, right. So mm-hmm. Dr. Nisbet is sort of in that class. He may not mm-hmm. have Dr. Zimbardo's like notoriety because- He's on TV more, right? And he was a host of a show on PBS a long time ago. Um, and so people talk, and, and he's interviewed a lot more. So Dr. Dr. Nisbet is more well-known within the circle of psychology for his research on social cognition and how we think. Um, and his book with Dr. Lee Ross, who we'll talk about in the interview, uh, was called The Person and the Situation. And for anybody who's studying psych, I really would recommend that book and recommend taking social psych. But I, I don't want to do too much of the repetition of some of these things we talked about during the interview, but I know some things stood out for you when we listened to it. I think well, we, pers- the yeah. person and situation <clears throat> made me think about uh, the person and the environment. Mm-hmm. Right, that's what we learn as as social workers in the social work profession. Uh, profession. <clears throat> Person in the environment. Anyway, that that was one of the things that uh, you know, stood out to me. Let's see what else he he talked about the um, we, you guys talked about Asian Americans, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> mental health month and Asian Americans and sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, while you. Gather yourself. You okay, honey? <laughs> oh my goodness. Allergies kick it in. And uh, so, yeah, so th- I feel like this interview, um, even though I was a little bit nervous at the beginning, as you can tell, I, when you listen to it, I, I couldn't pronounce the word academy for some reason. 
I guess I was thinking of the word academic and it just came out wrong. But after that, I, f- I feel like um, we had a very pleasant conversation. I, I think it was just, it felt very natural and I'm not a professional interviewer, you know, and transitioning from talking to myself to having a conversation with someone in a recorded recording I, session. I thought, it, I thought it went really well. Yeah. I, yeah. I did. Yeah. And there was a lot of information uh, I think the the listeners would uh, enjoy, especially psych majors. <clears throat> yeah, and he gave some advice, right? For yeah, for those who are pursuing maybe a graduate career in social psychology, you know, or just picking a graduate school, and um, and I picked his brain about a lot of different current event topics too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, about the pandemic. Yeah. And so that, that was interesting. It was interesting. So I, I do recommend his book, actually. And again, I'm not being paid to say that. Uh, yeah. And there was another book that he mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, American... American Nations. American Nations. I'm curious about that book. Yeah. And Bitter <laughs> Angels of Our Nature was another one that he talked about. So th- those I'll put in the... I'll put links in the description mm-hmm. below as, as these are items that came up during our, our conversation. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, please give, give us feedback on the interview and, and I'm scheduling more interviews to come this month and hopefully in June well, and July. Yeah. And I'm hoping that, you know, we can continue our conversation, mm-hmm. uh, not just about Burma in general, but just in general about, um, our travels, you know, <clears throat> homeschooling, um, what else? What else did we talk about? Some of the things that we might want to uh, converse about. Well, we talked about your, helping, your helping, helping our friends in Myanmar, yeah. in Burma, right? But also, so. remember, we, we talked a little bit about um, <clears throat> women's brain and uh, menopause and, you know, women's health. And yeah. we talked a little bit about that. And I want to touch on that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think those are areas that probably don't get enough airtime, right? In terms of understanding, Perhaps. Yeah. you know, I mean, understanding how it affects one's mental health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of mental health, you know, I decided that, you know, every quarter we teach on the quarter system, whenever classes are offered to me because I'm an adjunct, I'm part-time, uh, I, 100% of the time I say yes, right? Yes, and you do. And I never say no. And even though we're not starving for money, that kind of thing. Um, well, you teach every semester, including yeah, summers. Yeah. And I do want to maintain benefits. So I have to teach a certain amount per year to average out so I can reach the threshold of having medical benefits and the retirement benefits. And I think for some reason, uh, maybe because of the accumulation of the pandemic and just everything else, I felt like, oh, and we're going to be on the road this summer. Why not just take a break from from teaching yeah, and enjoy yeah enjoy Wait, your time yeah wake away. up and not have to feel like i need to check email or yeah grade papers that kind of thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and i know i already disappointed a few students who signed up wanted to sign up for my summer class i was like oh sorry <laughs> yeah yeah but you gotta well, do what you gotta you do get, yeah you know? i hope you get the the mental health break that you need and go on more hikes and stay present yeah with us 
Yeah, it's easy to get scattered. Yeah. You know, and lose yeah, focus. Yeah, it's, it's, and also, I think the pandemic sort of keep us, I guess for us, you know, we used to, we're, we're always used to <clears throat> traveling, being somewhere always, you know, in the past, only in the past couple of years that we haven't really done that. That it, it feels, for me, it feels like we're trapped. Yeah, I don't feel like we do well as a couple when we're in one place for too long, right? The, the routine, I think we need, we need a change of pace. Yeah, need the stimulation of, uh, you know, curi- fulfilling curiosity, finding something new, finding a new place, meeting new people, you know, encountering yeah, we new We haven't cultures. done that at all. That's actually good for the brain meeting, too, right? Meeting new people and... Just meeting people. Starting, <laughs> yeah, starting new conversations or even talking about things that we have in common or not have in common or uh, just, you know, having a new view, I guess, a new scenery. Yeah, so we'll continue doing podcasts over the summer and just focus hopefully. on one thing and yeah. you know, hopefully still do this on the road and just uh, enjoy our time off and then mm-hmm. regroup um, for the fall and make plans from there, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I think we do better when we have something to look forward to, when it's just sort of like another day, you know, and then you wake up as another day. So got to make some plans. Yep. Right? I agree. Totally. Okay totally up my alley yeah. make plans have goals go somewhere you've never been before <laughs> that's my motto <laughs> every oh. year every month actually go somewhere you've never been before well have Emma print out some bumper <clears throat> stickers with your mottos um, okay so let's right. go ahead and uh, wrap this portion up and then after this brief break, you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Richard Nesbeth, who's a retired professor at the University of Michigan, and I consider him an all-star. That's the analogy I used in the field of psychology. Okay. Okay. Okay, Until next time. Until next time. Hello, friends. Let me take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Let me talk to you a little bit about searching for happiness or trying to achieve goals. And oftentimes, life and circumstances and other reasons get in the way. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with your therapist within 48 hours. And it's not a crisis hotline, okay? And it's not... Self-help is actual professional counseling, but is done securely online. You have access to BetterHelp's network of over 20,000 counselors with a wide variety of expertise and training. And this is also about accessibility. If you don't have a counselor in your area to see in person, then this could be a great solution for you. So this service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. So again, accessibility. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit 
in an uncomfortable waiting room as in traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, and they make it easy and free if you want to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com slash PsychExplained and join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced mental health professionals. And there's a special offer for my Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash psych explained you can see the link in the show notes thanks again to better help for sponsoring this episode of psychology concepts explained okay today i have a very special guest on psychology concepts explained again this is your host dr jack chuang and um, it's a rare opportunity to interview such an accomplished uh academic in our field. So let me introduce to you Dr. Richard Nisbet, and here's a little excerpt from his, uh, from his book, which is called Thinking. Okay. All right. And uh, Dr. Nisbet is the Theodore M. Newcomb Distinguished University Professor of Psychology Emeritus at the University of Michigan. I'll ask you what that means a little bit. He also taught psychology at Columbia University and Yale University, American Academy of Arts and Science, at the National Academy of Science. And he was a John Simon Guggenheim Fellow, received a Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award from the American Psych Association and the Gold Medal Award for Lifetime Mentorship, which I'll, I'll ask you more about later also, from the Association for Psychological Science. Most of his work is focused on social psych and cognitive psychology. And he also wrote uh, several other books and co-wrote many other books in addition to many of his research uh, articles, The Geography of Thought, How Asians and Westerners Think Differently, and Why. And why. And that book won the William James Book Award from the APA. So welcome to the show, Dr. Nisbet. Hi, thank you. Yeah, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. Recovering from traveling across the country. So Yeah, tell me a little bit about that in terms of, uh, you, you mentioned in your book and you told me at one point that you split your time between Michigan and Arizona. Right. Yeah. So in the last 10 years, we've spent at least a significant amount of time in Tucson. And um, you asked um, about the uh, suffix to my title of yes. emeritus. It means yes. retired. So once I retired, we now spend uh, half our time in Tucson and half our time in Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, complicated way to live actually it turns out <laughs> but as i recall when i was at the university of houston as a grad student we also had uh, a few emeritus professors and they still had their offices so do you still have an office on campus i do but you know the truth is i never used my office very much i mean i just used it for appointments um i i can't work very well <clears throat> in an environment when i can be interrupted i mean it's just huge to not be interruptible. So. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. So 
when looking through, let me give you my first impressions of the book and and what I really enjoyed about it was that it had a bit of a Forrest Gump quality to it <laughs> in the sense that if you remember the film, how he just went through all these major events in history, right? Either encountered it in person or witnessed it. And that's what I felt like with this book was that it was a walk through the historical milestones of social psychology and social cognition research. So, I mean, just what was that like in a nutshell of, of going through those periods of time, but also interacting with what I feel like, and I was a social psych grad student for a few years, what I feel like with all stars, including yourself of the field of social psych. Right. Well, you know, it didn't exactly, I didn't, I never thought of them as all stars. I just thought of <laughs> the folks I hung out with. Right. And a, a lot of them did turn out to be very distinguished. Um, they were a lot of uh, my, my favorite all star uh, was Lee Ross. Um, I wrote two books with, and but that doesn't begin to cover my association with him. I mean, we were best friends for 55 years. He just died uh, hmm. this last Friday. Really? Oh, I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. No, that is a huge loss. Yes, it is. It's a huge loss for me. It's a big loss hmm. for the field. It's a big loss for the intellectual world. He, he was... Um, extremely important uh, through two avenues at Stanford, which is where he spent his whole career. <clears throat> One was in a graduate course that he taught with Mark Lepper about the elements of social psychology. And that course was taken over the years by hundreds, if not thousands of people from just every field at Stanford, including business and law and uh, history and so on. Um, the course was always jam-packed. Um, so that was a, a huge impact of spreading social psychology uh, to other disciplines and ultimately to the world. Uh, and the other is through um, a uh, an institute called, let's see, something like uh, International Center uh, for uh, societal conflicts. Uh, and he founded that with uh, uh, the uh, Nobel Prize winner. Um, gee, I'm going to have to hold off for a minute here. Uh, Kenneth Arrow uh, and, uh, and Amos Tversky, uh, who, was, you know, was a very great psychologist and who would have won the Nobel Prize for economics, actually, had he lived. Um, his partner, Danny Kahneman, uh, did win the Nobel Prize. But um, so, uh, and they had a big impact on solution of problems, both in Northern, Northern Ireland and in the Middle East. Um, I mean, they, they dealt with the principles, you know, prime ministers and so on. Uh, and, uh, and he had a very interesting uh, approach to international relations conflicts, uh, which uh, I think had an impact. That's wonderful. So for yourself and Dr. Ross, I noticed in the book, you mentioned briefly about 
how you should, one should not enter into the field of social psychology if their motive was to solve social problems. Right. Right. But yet social psych principles have so much ac- applicability, right? Just as, I, as you just mentioned. Right. So as a social psychologist, how do you, how does one balance that? And, and would you, would you still use that statement today for a, for a for an up and coming student looking to go into graduate school in social psych, but you know how how would you advise them in terms of this aspect? Well, they'll be happier probably as a social psychologist if their main interest in the field is intellectual curiosity um, rather than the desire to help people. Uh, when I first came into social psychology, there really was very little you could point to that social psychologists had ever done uh, that made things better for any individual or for society. Lately, that, that's been turned around. Fortunately, there are people who are uh, with lots of interventions now that, have, that are very effective. But <clears throat> I still think... Uh, People, if you if you really if your main goal in life is to feel like you're making a direct impact on people's lives, uh, I don't think any academic field is is ideal, and that includes social psychology. Um, so maybe if someone feels the need to uh, be more an active part of society, that maybe they should go into fields like clinical psych perhaps counseling right. or social right. work yes exactly yeah. Exactly. yeah yeah that's very interesting so it, it seems to me like any field of science has this applied side also this the basic research side so what you're saying is that your main abo- motivation was intellectual curiosity you just want to discover how the mind works how we process information and then just a byproduct of that it can be applied maybe by yourself or others to actual social problems later right exactly yeah yeah so i was scrolling through your cv which takes a lot of time by the way and i was wondering how in the world does how how were you so productive what was your work process like as an academic and just describe how that is especially for those of you know who are beginning researchers or first-year, second-year academics trying to get tenure um, and the race to publish as much as possible. How do you balance the quantity versus quality and and, and just all of that? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, First of all, I, you know, if you, if you're in the business for 55 years, you end up with a lot of publications. (laughs) (laughs) Just they get their creation and a lot of the stuff, a lot of stuff is, not very important. I'd say one in three things on my publication list are, uh, have some real merit. Um, but uh, I was, as I say in my book, uh, I was meant to be a workaholic, <laughs> very ambitious, raised as a Methodist, to be conscientious, you know, and so on. So, uh, and I was uh, saved from workaholism by the fact that my advisor, who was at that time really probably the best social psychologist uh, around, the best person to work with, certainly, um, 
Dr. He, Schachter. That's right, Dr. Yeah. Stanley Schachter. Yeah. Um, and he he worked an honest, you know, 40 hour week, didn't work on the weekend, uh, worked a half day uh, in the summer. Uh, so, you know, it's a perfectly reasonable way to live a life. And the other person was uh, Bill McGuire, uh, who was a brilliant guy who was always in the office. I mean, every morning, noon, and night. Um, and he, he was a good social psychologist. Uh, he had uh, some impact on the field, but nothing like Schachter. So here I have these two. And Schachter, I did not think that Schachter was as smart uh, as McGuire. So, I mean, you could. I learned that you can be not a genius, uh, but be very successful uh, without working all that hard. And you can be, on the other hand, you can be truly brilliant, work all the time and not have that much of an impact on the field. <laughs> so that was, that was perfect for me. And it, although as I joke, I did become sort of a workaholic uh, many years later, long after I had tenure, because the field started, everybody was a workaholic. Everybody was taking the stairs mm -hmm. two at mm -hmm. a time. And uh, <clears throat> uh, so that, that sort of rubs off on you. I, mean, I ended up working a larger fraction of the time than I probably should. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think you do your best work if you're putting in 60-hour weeks. I really yeah, don't. yeah. And I'm on Twitter maybe a little bit too much. And I see a lot of posts, uh, tweets from academics, young academics, and how a lot of them are burnt out from academics. And they're asking these open-ended questions to the, to the Twitterverse. You know, should I stay? Should I leave? Some people decide to quit. Um, what's your perspective on that? Have you ever experienced that where maybe you've almost near burned out and how did you learn to stick with it? No, I, I never really did. Uh, I was lucky in that sense. Um, I I never worked more than I was willing to. I, after, as I say, by the time around the age of 40, I did start working too much for not very good reasons. Uh, mimicry, <laughs> primarily. Uh, and um, so I, and I, and the, the work always held interest for me. Now, there's always a lot of stuff you have to do that's not thrilling. I mean, you know, teaching lower level undergraduate mm -hmm. courses when many of the students seem to not be very interested is not a, a great way to spend your time. But I, I didn't do that. My, my graduate students and my undergraduates, too, have always been interested. And, uh, and I felt it was uh, useful uh, thing for me to do to be teaching. So the the research was something that I had had great value and the teaching also had value and always did really. Now that but any job has got stuff associated with it that you don't like. I mean <clears throat> I used to the thing I didn't I know nobody likes grading papers. <laughs> <laughs> Any of your listeners think your professors go home, oh, God, I can dig in and grade them. No. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It is hard. Yeah. It's yeah. hard. So, so that aspect of, the, of things I, I never really much enjoyed. Um, I, 
and the other thing is writing grant proposals, which mm-hmm. is oh boy, um, tedious, right? In tedious, terms of right. But and I used to complain. I said, you know, dang it, I'm doing good work. Why don't they just ship me some money? Um, <laughs> but, you, de- you deserve it, <laughs> right? I deserve it. Clearly, I deserve it, and I don't. should be able to send a letter. But when I finished a grant proposal. Almost every time I said that was the most useful thing I could be doing with myself mm. Mm. because uh, although much of the research you propose isn't stuff that you really plan to do, thinking about where you should go is tremendously useful. Um, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower, I just read a quote from him recently, which I loved. He said, the plan is nothing. Planning is everything. Uh, and you think about that from a military standpoint, the plan is nothing because it, the plan never works out. I mean, you know, it just <laughs> things immediately start going wrong. Right. Uh, and, but if you've done planning, you know, the lay of the territory, you know, where the, how to get resources, you know, you know, where to go from here, you know, if things go wrong, where to go from there, if things go wrong and so on. Um, so, uh, planning your, research program, even though you're only going to do a small fraction of what you do in your planning, is really invaluable, but not always a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's that's the key is to have that balance of now now what you were talking about research is brought brought to mind a question was that in your body of research and all the different subjects you focused on out of your intellectual curiosity, some became very well known attached to your name, you know, like perhaps forever in a social psych textbook. But which ones, which ideas or research topics, concepts were you most proud of just for the sake of your own discovery versus what turned out to be the most, what you're well known for? Is there a difference there? Are there some things that you wished got more coverage? Like, I wish they would put this more in the social psych books you know, this concept's really important. I spent a lot of time on it. And it's a really wonderful discovery, but just did not, textbook authors or whatnot just didn't shine a light on it. They end up going to the same, you know, actor-observer bias and attribution theory research. Um, was were, were there any underdog subjects in, in your in your work that felt like, you know, I wish people would talk more about this? Right. Yeah, definitely. There's one particular thing. I, I think the most valuable thing I did was to show that you can teach people abstract rules for reasoning that have a real impact on the way they think in everyday life. And interestingly, I mean, I, I was uh, early in my career, I was doing work on heuristics and biases, which was showing really what, how bad the mistakes can be in our reasoning. Uh, and I used to joke, you know, not only are we stupid, but you can't make us smarter. Uh, <laughs> and I began to think, well, you know, I, why don't I just prove that, that you can't, even with the best will in the world, you can't actually make people apply statistical reasoning, probabilistic, probabilistic reasoning, cost-benefit reasoning, that you can't really teach that stuff. So I started teaching it. And to my astonishment, I mean, just a very brief period of time can teach, for example, the law of large numbers. The law of large numbers is you you can't live the fullest possible life without understanding the law of large numbers because it 
tells you how much evidence uh, is important to have uh, for any given judgment or decision. <clears throat> and uh, it, it turns out that you can teach that uh, like in a matter of 15 or 20 minutes. And uh, you can either teach it in the abstract or you can teach it across concrete problems in a particular domain. They're both effective. I mean, it's quite astonishing to me that the just teaching the abstract rules, I mean, you know, with with uh, balls of jelly beans, I mean, white and red, and uh, um, and then giving people problems where you say, you can apply that to these everyday problems, and then they can do it. I mean, and or you can give them just <clears throat> concrete uh, problems in a particular domain, like sports, for example, uh, and... Uh, not only will they apply it in that domain, they'll apply it in domains that are very distant from that. Um, now, the reason this was surprising is that psychologists, we, we learned, people of my generation, learned that you can't teach abstract rules. I mean, Piaget said the rules for reasoning, part of them are just wired in and part of them are in Induced by living in the world. You can't teach them in the abstract. He didn't have a shred of evidence for that. Right. <laughs> but it became dogma, uh, and, yeah. <clears throat> um, which I bought. That's why I thought I, that's why I was so astonished to see, my goodness, you can. Now, that didn't get a lot of attention because it isn't exciting work uh, in, a, mm -hmm. in a way. Uh, <clears throat> it's exciting to me because uh, I was surprised by it and I, and I, and I, feel it's tremendously important. Um, but I don't hear people talk about it. Uh, I don't hear, <clears throat> I'm very dubious that statisticians, uh, when they teach statistics, uh, use concrete everyday life examples. They probably have no idea of the extent to which people can generalize from the solution to the one particular concrete everyday life problem to a huge range of problems. <clears throat> right, right. Um, so and I'm, I'm trying, I'm, as I'm saying this, is, could, is there some way I could get that, um, that information out to people who, who, who teach uh, inferential rules that mm -hmm. have utility? Does that apply to today's climate of misinformation or the general public's lack of understanding, because of the lack of understanding of how basic statistics work, leads them to maybe not trust the vaccines or, right? I mean, do those theoretical concepts apply to this real life example that we're going through today, struggling with the pandemic, where you have people who just, who are open and accepting and trusting of government and the vaccine development and, and their efficacy. And then you have a whole group of people that no matter what, right, even though it's readily available, like in Texas, you don't have to wait, you just go, no restrictions and get your shots. But they're still not trusting. I mean, how would social cognition help explain that mindset or, or this, this way of thinking or faulty thinking? I, I think it's the question of understanding the scientific method. I, it would yeah. be very interesting to me 
to see how many people are anti-vaccine who have an understanding of the scientific method. Mm. Um, and I mean, I, I don't, it's hard for you to imagine that somebody who really understands, and the, the basic aspect of the scientific method is trivially easy to understand. The, the, at least the scientific method that social psychologists use. I mean, if you want to know whether A is better than B, whether you know A procedure or B procedure or a way of thinking or whatever, you just do a randomized control experiment. I mean, you, in effect, you uh, say these, this batch of people that you select at random, you flip a coin and they go into the experimental group or that comes up tails and they go into the control group and then you see what happens and, and, and you now know the effectiveness of one procedure versus another because you randomly determined it. And actually this is one very important thing that people don't fully understand is that random. You don't have an experiment if you don't have random assignment to condition. Right. That's an, that's an end to it. People don't really fully fully understand that. They think, oh, well, random, well, okay, whatever you say. No, no, no. Random is critical. Right. You don't have random assignment. And if you do have random assignment, then you know that, that the effectiveness of a particular procedure with a particular class of person, children or old people or whatever, <clears throat> Um, or people in general, um, and if they if they understand that, I don't think you're going to find them rejecting the idea of the vaccine. <clears throat> yeah, and the psychology as a science, you know, that's in every introduction to psych class at the very very beginning chapters, right? Research methodology, and I still occasionally, I'm not sure if it's just my teaching method. <laughs> One time, I ran to a student many years later, and there was still had the mindset that psychology was not a science, that somehow psychiatry was a science, oh biology goodness. and chemistry, but then psychology wasn't. So I'm not sure where I went wrong with this particular person, because I, I really harp on how useful these concepts are for everyday life. And mm -hmm. it still sort of goes over their head that psychology is a science. So yeah, I think there is a lack of basic scientific understanding. And uh, if you don't mind, I want to stick with this topic of the pandemic just because we're living through it and and hopefully we're going to get past it soon and and i was wondering i don't have that book that we just mentioned in your bio but the difference in thinking between asians and westerners right yeah and you see some although not 100 percent, but some of the east asian countries like taiwan and singapore really nailed it in terms of controlling the spread even though there are some spikes lately past few days how do you explain when, when you're seeing this in the news, you know, the difference between this country versus us and how we're handling or versus even New Zealand, you know, uh, and other, what goes through your mind in terms of, Oh, you know, maybe there are some cultural factors at play as opposed to just pure, like, you know, government intervention policies. Yeah. I have no doubt that um, national character <laughs> is involved here. Um, Actually, I had a communication with uh, a psychologist who was living in China uh, and 
he started the conversation. Why are the Chinese so successful uh, compared to us? And uh, the notion of harmony, living in harmony with your fellows, is really central to uh, Confucian cultures. That's China, Korea, Japan, Mm -hmm. much of Southeast Asia, and so on. And um, that has that has its good sides and its less sure. good sides. The good sides is what we've just seen. If you feel <clears throat> people are told, they're told, look, this is what you need to do for yourself, but also for the people around you. Oh, that has a big impact on an East Asian. Uh, it doesn't have such a big impact on all Americans. Uh, but actually, there's there's an extremely interesting book which I'm recommending to everybody these mm-hmm. days called American Nations, and the theme is that um, there are eleven different national cultures in the U.S. Mm, I mean, interesting. There, there's the original um, Puritans who settled New England, and they had a very strong concept of the common good. I mean. <clears throat> And they had, you know, the town meeting where everybody got together and decided what they were Mm -hmm. going to do. And they were extremely effective at cooperating. And at the other extreme, there are two different. One is a a relatively uh, uh, aristocratic English who settled Virginia. And they didn't have such a strong feeling about the common good. Uh, they, They had a feeling about the, the good for my kind of person, my kind <laughs> of aristocratic person. Sure. Uh, and then there's uh, the uh, the people who settled Appalachia, uh, the Upper South, uh, the Scotch Irish, who had really no conception of the common good at all. And mm. if you look today, if you look <laughs> vaccine usage today, it maps so completely onto that. I mean, it's Appalachia, it's these Scotch Irish people mm. that you know are not cooperating here and in new england they are so um uh and there there is a, a conception i think more of a conception across confucian countries of the common good though i wouldn't wouldn't want to equate it with the um yankee um puritan descended sense of common good uh, where it really was the entire community. And whatever you think about what Europeans, the people of Western European origin, we've done a lot of bad things, let's face it, <laughs> I mean, colonialism, imperialism, uh, and so on. But there is a sense of universality. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and that you have obligations to every human being. And that's not so common. Uh, in the Confucian countries. You have obligations to people who are broadly like you, uh, people who are governed by the emperor in, you know, in, in China. <clears throat> That's very widespread, but it doesn't extend to people in Africa or Europe uh, automatically. So that this extreme universalizing is characteristic of Western European approaches to life. So is that the same definition of the concept of collectivism or or is that defined in a different way 
individualism, collectivism difference. Yeah, they're they're different. I, I I've I've, all, I've been reluctant to use the term individualism, collectivism because they're so broad and they mean yeah. so many different things to different right. people. So the Shinobu Kitayama and Hazel Marcus you know, have this concept of independent, uh, interdependent, and interdependent. I remember the video when I was in grad school. I watched their video. Oh yeah, I'm not sure I ever saw it. Well, you have that advantage. <laughs> it might have been on PBS or one of the Discovering Psychology series hosted by Philip Zimbardo uh, back in the day, and I remember. Right. No, those two researchers talking about this specific subject. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> right. No, that's just the right kind of thing to introduce here. Yeah. So, um, so that for some people, your your understanding of yourself, your conception of yourself, uh, is. Um, collective it's interdependent you uh if you're someone from uh confucian culture uh yourself is not such a big deal and it's certainly not this isolated capsule of of preferences and and skills and so Mm -hmm. on it's diffuse over you and your people closest to you. And the most powerful way of describing interdependence to me is that if that for interdependent people, if they lose a friend, friend dies, for example, yeah. uh, they think they're, they feel like a different person. And now every Westerner understands that in some sense. I mean, if I were to lose my wife, uh, it's perfectly clear to me I would be a different person. I mean, it, it's just, um, you know, half of what I am is so wound up with my relationship with my wife. And and it's been very much brought home to me with my friend Lee Ross dying. Yeah. It's yeah. my closest friend for 55 years. And I absolutely am a different person now. I mean, it's just diminished, but not just diminished. I mean, literally just a different person. Yeah, um, you're altered. Yeah, right. Um, so, uh, but that, just that conception of the self is much broader for Confucian people. So, I mean, it's just everyone in their broad social network is a part of themselves. And if you ask one of my favorite experiments, did I'm going to make sure I assign the right person. I don't know if it was Shenavu or Hazel. One of them asks people to draw circles representing themselves and their half dozen closest associates uh-huh. and lines from themselves to each of these people and lines from each of, of, of these individuals to the other individuals in this network. So you draw your social network. And the clever thing is Westerners, certainly Americans, the self-circle is bigger than the circle for other <laughs> right and for east asians it isn't right. uh, and for westerners they always the self is in the middle by god you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right center of the universe me alone. myself and i yeah, yeah. right yeah <laughs> and uh, for east asians they're quite likely to draw the self off to the side <laughs> mm-hmm. rather than in the center 
Uh, and that, that just worlds about the, yeah, the how understanding we, of self. Exactly. And one example they used, and <laughs> I'm going back to their video because I think it came from there. I don't know why I have a light bulb memory of this. But uh, they talked about interviewing Olympic athletes from a variety of countries and who they credit their success to, right? Mm -hmm. The American athlete would most likely say it's my hard work, right? Mm -hmm. My training. They don't really mention other people unless it's like a relay race or something, right? There, there are teammates involved or like a basketball team, but there's so much focus, like you said, on the individual. But when they interview Japanese athletes, like a gymnast, for example, who won, the first thing they'll say is, oh, my coach. Right. And, and, and or my parents, or, you know, they talk a lot about the people. And also, you know, as a Taiwanese American, I grew up with that mindset that you don't brag about yourself. Right. Right. But there's a loophole. You can allow other people to brag about you. <laughs> and, and, and that's why job interviews are so Be difficult. Be my guest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have someone yeah, brag about me. And, uh, and so you, you, so it's a very indirect communication style to get to the same point is, is that to laud your accomplishments, but you don't say that first person. You have others do that work for you. And that's why I think maybe for international students or, or those coming over to, to work and maybe in Silicon Valley and they go to a job interview, they may have a tough time because of that mindset, right? They're, they're thinking, well, you know, other people going in there bragging about their resume, and they go in there and say, oh, I'm okay. <laughs> I have, have a great anecdote about that kind of thing. Um, it, there's an American social psychologist uh, who uh, went and lived in Japan for a long time. Uh, was, sort of interrupted his graduate school to, to do actual cultural uh, research in uh, Japan. He'd been there for several years married a Japanese woman. And when it came, term, <laughs> came time to apply for jobs in the US, the, he would say things like, you know, although uh, I, I, I don't claim to have the greatest skills in the world, and although there's many aspects of social psychology that I, I'm not in command of, still I think, <laughs> And his advisor saw the draft and letter. So, what the hell are you? Have you done? You say I'm terrific at this and I'm terrific at that. And you and that's the way you apply for a job. So he had taken on that that Eastern, you know, mm, humility, right, right? Which right. is, and actually, this is uh, something I would really like for your viewers mm -hmm. to know about. Um. A student, a former student of mine, now a business professor at Columbia, and a student of his, now a professor at MIT, whose name is Jackson Liu. I don't know if you've heard the concept of the bamboo ceiling. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So he decides. Well, let's look at that. Let's see who is CEOs of the major of the major companies. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there is definitely a bamboo ceiling for East Asians, but not at all for South Asians, Indians, mm. Pakistanis, right. Sri Lankans. They're more, they are more likely to be heads of U.S. corporations than whites. <laughs> well, look at Microsoft and Google. I mean, they're, they're countless companies, yeah. That's right, countless mm -hmm. companies. That it, it just, so this is the flip side of humility. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, you don't get to be CEO by saying, oh, I could be wrong about this and I don't want to impose. Say, this is the story. You're wrong. I'm right. This is the way we're going to do it. I mean, it's the South Asians are not they're not aggressive. I mean, they're they're not they don't necessarily beat their own drum. They're just uh, assertive. And assertiveness is not an East Asian style. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, a guy like um, uh, Andrew Yang, uh, he he's not very East Asian. <laughs> no, oh, we talk a lot about him, actually. So I want to hear your thoughts about how he comes across. Well, well, he just comes across as an assertive guy. I mean, yeah, you're my yeah. opinions, and you ought to yeah. think the way I do, and you'd be better off. I mean, which is, but, but how did he get to be that way when so many Asian Americans, East Asian Americans, are not? And I've found out recently that he was in college. He was an, a debater of international That's right. reputation. That's right. And in debate, you learn how to be assertive without being obnoxious. I mean, <laughs> I know what the story is. A, B, C, that implies G. And, you know, if you think anything different, let me tell you why you're wrong. I mean, it's just, it's all about an assertive style of, of functioning. Uh, so now... Did Andrew Yang debate because he was already a very assertive guy, or did he learn an assertive style from debate? Right. We'll we'll never know. We'll never know. Yeah, yeah. Might be a little but, bit of both. Right. But I really, for East Asia, for actually for anybody, I would recommend yeah. debate. It's uh, for reasons mm -hmm. that we can talk about later. But certainly for East Asians, yeah. if they're going to yeah. live in this country, and also just the the ethnic stereotype, right? That. Um, East Asian or Asian Americans are good at, let's say, um, their work, whether it's computer programming or whatnot, right? But then they they have this. There's a perception that, and perhaps management buys into this, and then their humility reinforces that, right? right? This vicious cycle where they can't move up, right. and despite whatever great leadership skills they may have, they're overlooked right. because they're assumed to not have those qualities, right? Right. Actually, that's that's a message that really needs to get out that to people in corporations that just because this guy doesn't beat his own drum, don't assume he doesn't have a drum. So <laughs> there should be more willingness to to uh, to give a chance to people yeah. who don't have this characteristic style of uh, of uh, leadership. It's it seems to match well with that really uh, popular style of leadership for a while, servant leadership. Right. <laughs> you think you think that that kind of not in your face, all about me kind of leadership would actually uh, be looked highly upon. So right. yeah, that, so I, I'm I'm thinking whatever discrimination that's placed against any group that these are the kinds of things we're talking about, right? That that somehow people in power have these perceptions of these groups and, and just over time they get reinforced and they're hard to break down right. these stereotypes. So this, this might be a good segue to talk about and, and, and then we can uh, wrap up fairly soon. I've taken up a lot of your time this morning that well, I've enjoyed um, it. Yeah. Thank you. And the unfortunate uh, anti-Asian hate 
that's going on right now. And, and there's a lot of publicity, a lot of talk about it right now, because also Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, right? And that's why I'm so, and Mental Health Awareness Month, it's all these things combined in May. And it's great to have you on today that we can discuss these things, given your expertise. So what what is happening here that the layperson, they may just have this, you know, maybe a crude understanding of what's happening here. Why are Asians being targeted? Why do people act this way? And it seems like there's there's no way to predict who the aggressor will be in terms of their racial background, right? Um, there's these random attacks happening uh, against usually Asian elderly people. Uh, what's your thought on what's happening and how can we move forward and resolve this as a society? How, how do we make it better? I, I, I simply don't comprehend it. I mean, yeah. I, I cannot comprehend it. I mean, <clears throat> there's this, I think China caused the, uh, the uh, virus. So, so a sensible thing to do would be to attack an East Asian in this country who's never set foot in China. I mean, there's yeah, no, exa- there's there's no, no logic. No, yeah. There's no logic. I mean, right. it's, I mean, there are people who I suppose and who hateful people and, you know, you give them some, some flimsy excuse for a target to attack a member of some group. I, I have no idea what fraction are involved. I mean, I ne- you know, I never hear people say unfavorable things about people of Asian descent, East Asian or South Asian. I mean, I just, but of course, you know, we're academics. I'm, we just yeah, we're in that circle of people yeah. that, you know, yeah. tend not to do those things. Yeah. And, and so, we tend not to witness it. Yeah. But I mean, I never even hear of it. I mean, I mean, imagine somebody who is prejudiced. I mean, I don't have an image of uh, poorly educated people talking about resentments of East Asians. I mean, it just doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have an image. I don't have nothing. Literature, movies, I, I don't. Um, so I don't understand. I don't know how many people are involved. I mean, it yeah. doesn't take many doesn't take many people to create a terrible social phenomenon. Um, well, I think that as a social scientist, that's our first step, right? Is to identify the extent of the problem, right. whether in numbers that it's a real problem, or is that there's a heightened awareness and more reporting of the same problem than before. Or is it the availability heuristic? We see the same video over and over, and we assume it happens more frequently than it does. Well, certainly right? something to that. I, I don't know. I just was shocked recently to find out how many cases there are of documented killings of Black people uh, who were not, not, uh, you're not using a weapon or threatening a weapon or anything else. Uh, by police, and the answer is they're only like twelve or fourteen. I mean, we've had an incredible social upheaval over uh, you know the few documented instances which have which have been visible to everybody. I mean, right. uh, I mean the horror of the 
you know, the two or three events, four or five, maybe a dozen events that we've seen, but they're, they're rare. I mean, uh, it, probably not as rare as would be implied by documentation, actual documentation. Right. I mean, it, I mean uh, there was just something in the paper yesterday, I think, about some black guy who's taken into the woods someplace and uh, then by police and or he runs into the woods and police go in after and he comes out dead. Hmm. And it's just very, you know, suspicious that he was he was un, unarmed. Uh, very suspicious that he was killed. But and I don't know we don't know how many instances there are like that. But I mean in my lifetime I've never I've never even heard of of instances of attacks on East Asians, um, people of East, East Asian. Background. Well, do you remember the Vincent Chin case in 1982, um, where he, I believe it was in Michigan, and that was at a time when the American auto workers were, had a very strong anti-Japanese sentiment, oh, yeah. right. remember? And yeah. he, he was of Chinese descent, I believe, right. maybe second generation, and uh, he was just uh, beaten to death by some auto workers um, and, and I believe they haven't even served any time or very little time. I mean, there just really wasn't justice served in that case. And because they just assumed he was Japanese. Yeah. And, and even with regards to police brutality, I think it's hard for us to talk about because we're, we're kind of, I mean, we're outsiders, right? So we, we don't live in the neighborhoods that maybe people don't feel safe because of police presence or being daily, harassed daily by them versus living in uh, this kind of suburb where we feel comforted by the presence of a police vehicle, right? And, and, and to me, I feel like because of politics and because of these pundits, you know, we have a hard time addressing social problems because we tend to just want to take a very simplistic binary view of things right that so it's so it's gone from black lives matter to blue lives matter to you know and, and it seems like well where do they come together to actually try to resolve the problem why why can't someone who supports police also acknowledge that there are instances where they do these awful deeds unjustly right and then there are others who feel like the police are a threat but but then on the other hand what would we, what would what, what would we do without police officers around, right? Uh, how would we handle crime or, or other kinds of events? So <laughs> that's frustrating. <laughs> well, I mean, people, people, you know, I used to joke that I, I, I study the stupidities of smart people. <laughs> Those <laughs> yeah. interest me, <laughs> myself, for instance. <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, and I and I don't understand the kinds of stupidities. I, I literally I don't I can't I don't comprehend them. I mean I don't. Yeah. Uh, I never <clears throat> I never. I mean, just people feeling like somehow you're tainted by group membership. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. that, I mean involuntary group membership, race, nationality. <clears throat> 
I mean, it's, it's, I don't understand it. So, it's simply a lack of science education. You know, what we talked about earlier about the scientific method. I mean, if there was a, just a better grounding of this as when kids are young to be able to, you know, make better judgments of, of events, uh, better statistical reasoning, then maybe we'd all be better off. It just seems like it seems so clear, or maybe just in my eyes, that it's just a simple lack of understanding of science and statistics and, and logic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you, one feels, I mean, you and I, I'm sure feel confident that people who are attacking people of Asian origin are not educated. I mean, you're, it's, I, I, it's hard to imagine. Uh, I, I can't imagine a college student uh, doing these kinds of things. Um, but, you know, after 9-11, there were a lot, there was a lot of violence towards yes. South Asians. Right. That's right. Because, <laughs> you know, uh, they're brown, you know. Right. And, uh, so. But. Yeah. In Texas, we had cases of people being shot, you know, like convenience store owners being attacked. And, and they weren't even of Middle Eastern descent. They may have been from India. Yeah. Right. right? And right. It, but it, again, logic doesn't enter the picture. Right. Right. Um, well, I, I want to finish with, uh, maybe on a more positive note, <laughs> we've been talking a lot about these problems we're having right now in our society with the pandemic and the, and the anti-Asian hate and all that. But, um, in, in your opinion, what can we as individuals, Right. We, and I always talk about how we can only control what we can control. Right. There's a lot, so many things outside of our control or, or influence. But what can we say to the individuals who happen to be listening or watching us today who may be feeling depressed about world events and society and all that and all the political bickering? What, what can we tell them? For you as a psychological researcher, for myself as a teacher, well, of course, you're a professor as well. What what can we tell them to give them a sense of optimism for the future? Well, the best thing I can think of is to become familiar with the contents of Steve Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which most people find absolutely astonishing. In Oxford, three or four hundred years ago, the... Uh, In any given year, there would be 100 people killed. Today, there's one person killed in Oxford per year on Mm. average. Uh, But it's it's not just that. I mean, reading sometimes about historical figures, we can be shocked at what they were like. I mean, Woodrow Wilson was a racist. I mean, Woodrow Wilson came in often and he got rid of as many blacks as he could out wow. of the federal government. Uh, and it just, how is that possible? And it was a highly intelligent man who made real contributions uh, to the world and to society. I mean, it's just Winston Churchill used to talk about the jolly little wars he had participated in, <laughs> colonial, <laughs> popping off, you know, people in Africa. That was an amusing activity. I mean, this is Winston Churchill. We think of him as a giant of a human right. being. 
Uh, but even like uh, television shows, you're too young to remember Jackie Gleason, you know, who you may have seen. Yes, some. yes. I'm 54, I mean, so that's right about that period. I remember some of those shows. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, to the moon, Alice. <laughs> right, I mean, that's right, just, yeah. Joking about abuse, yeah. <laughs> right, joking about abuse. And people were laughing about it. And I, I mean, I didn't recognize it even at the time. I didn't recognize, or even Groucho Marx. I mm-hmm. mean, Groucho Marx, <clears throat> recently I started watching a, you know, the Groucho Marx classic. And he it was a very hostile behavior that people apparently found quite funny at the time. My wife had to stop watching it. I mean, it was just so unpleasant. So, um, and even there was a a bend in U.S. culture, which you definitely are too young to know about. The 60s, uh, people became, uh, people who were, oh, one, uh, this is a Elliot Aronson <clears throat> was a tough guy, lower class origin guy, hostile and dealing with students. In part, he was imitating his advisor, it was Leon Festinger, who was quite hostile. Fortunately, oh, Stanley Schachter was a Festinger PhD too, but Schachter was a very sweet, kind man. But <laughs> <laughs> many of Festinger's students were not. <laughs> And the 60s, you know, people went into these tea groups and, you know, uh, what was the, the, the era of kumbaya, I mean. Right, right. And, and, and Aronson was totally converting. I mean, became a different person. I mean, mm. he became a kind, sharing, you know, person to, to everybody. I mean, so you, you and that's, that's an individual change very marked and over a very brief period of time doctors used to be physicians used to be oh god they ruled the roost and you know they, they called you by their your first name when you were an adult and they you had to call them by doctor so and so and they were <clears throat> they were not terribly nice they were not very cuddly people and the 60s just made that impossible and <laughs> Physicians now are—I mean, to me, their behavior is perf- yeah. perfectly appropriate and acceptable. I mean, I very rarely encounter a physician who's arrogant and not so. But so the world has been getting better steadily, and we shouldn't be too thrown off by the unpleasantnesses and the even the horrors that still exist, because the world is actually—and it isn't even a recent development. We're, we're, Homicide rates have been going down for 10,000 years, <laughs> according to Pinker. He's got the data. Um, so, Right. And anyway. that goes back to your point about understanding large statistics. Right. Is that it may feel overwhelming and right. negative, but yet, right. by and large, most people's lives are better now than, than 20, 40, 60 years ago. Right. I mean, it's so upsetting. So many Asian Americans have to live in fear now. Mm-hmm. And probably the number of incidents, I, my, my guess is it's very small, but it, it doesn't take much in the way of negative instances right. for us to be become apprehensive. It, those attacks almost act as terrorism because it has that effect, right? Sm- f- relatively statistically small number of acts, but inducing a large amount of fear. Right. 
And I see that on social right. media from Asian American, like a lot of academics that talk about how they're afraid to go out for, to walk their dog or, or they may get yelled at and they, they, they talk about it online. So I think there's a, maybe there are more incidents that we just don't see just because someone didn't record it or doesn't make it on the social media. Um, but it seems like people who have these views that were more or less suppressed maybe in the past feel like they, they're okay voicing it now. There's less of a stigma perhaps against it. I don't know. Well, see, I, I, don't, I don't resonate to that because I don't, I don't think Asian Americans, do, first of all, to educated people, it's not an issue. I mean, they're not the ones who are behaving this way. Mm-hmm. But the people who are less educated, I, I don't East people of East Asian origin, it's just not part of their life space. I mean, it's you know mm-hmm. something they see on TV or it's the Korean, you know, um, uh, store owner who isn't a. It just isn't an important figure to them. It's just, I mean, it's just an excuse to yeah. be awful to yeah. other human beings, and it not not. That something has been brought up, you know, against that particular group. I mean, like the people going around <laughs> um, abusing people after 9 11. Yeah. Uh, they didn't have it. <clears throat> um, Middle Easterners were not a part of their life space uh, for most of them, I don't think. It just it wasn't as if there was some residue of anti uh, uh, Middle Eastern. Um, sentiment that's just you know well maybe that that maybe there's a hole in the research or maybe it's just that i'm not coming across it that can help dive into these kinds of things it seems like our in our discussion today we've come across uh maybe raised a, a bunch of questions that maybe a researcher out there could just jot some notes and say hey maybe right. i can start studying this yeah um, i would be interested yeah i would be interested to know i mean <clears throat> uh I, I, there probably is research out there. There, prob- prob- yeah. there are social psychologists who could give you a good answer to the question of was there a significant amount of anti-Asian sentiment in this country five years ago? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not that expert. That's for sure. Right, right. And then compare to now, right, and what, right. whether whether it was the the China virus rhetoric that right maybe had a cause and effect. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, Dr. Nisbet, any last thoughts that you want to leave to my listeners before we uh, bid adieu? Oh, God, that's so many, so many <laughs> thoughts I've heard of people. <laughs> I think I'll stand back. <laughs> no, but I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I had no idea where it was going to go, and, and I just wanted to be more spontaneous with whatever came to mind. And, yeah, it's and, much, and I, much more pleasant than the other interviews I've been having, I must say. I mean, oh, well, I appreciate that. And and I'm trying to learn to not talk too much to let my interviewee do uh, all the talking. <laughs> consistent with your ethnicity. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm going to try to hide in the background. Right. right. It's not about me. Right. Um, um, but but having done this for about a year now, I'm so used to talking to myself nonstop for about thirty to forty minutes that suddenly I, I, having a conversation with someone is so it's so refreshing. Yeah. Um, but I, I genuinely am, and no one's paid me to say this, I genuinely am enjoying this book. Uh, I, I, you're a great storyteller. 
just from the moment you arrived in El Paso, that, that kind of gripped me because uh, the way you described the heat, <laughs> exactly the same words as my experience. I told you before, when we arrived right. at DF Dallas-Fort Worth during the heat wave in 1980, right. and I just, I just thought of it was hell, but you, you put it much more eloquently in terms of how it felt arriving in El, in El Paso. Mm. Um, so oh, one last thing, I, I'm curious. You started in El Paso, but then you're accepted to Harvard, and you decided not to go there. And I know you gave a little bit of reasoning in the book, but for most people listening, they're probably thinking, well, who in the right mind would reject Harvard to go anywhere else? So, but in the end, were you happy with that decision? I kind of know the answer to this, but... Well, let's be clear. It, for undergraduate school, the yes, reason undergrad. I ended up at, for undergraduate school, I never applied to Harvard. Uh, <clears throat> the, my decision about undergraduate school was sort of bizarre. <clears throat> well, that's right. You went to Tufts. That's right. That, that's right. Harvard was grad school. That's right. That's, that's right. right. Okay. Yes. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. So no, and it, you know, you choose your grad school not by the prestige of the institution. If you're smart, you choose it on the basis of who's the best person I can work with, who can really teach me the business I'm trying to learn. Uh, but no, the way I went to Tufts is that I graduated, and this was common in Texas at the time. I graduated in February, no January, uh, rather than in June. Uh, people would be. You, you could be in high fourth grade or low fifth grade. I mean, you're at the end of the studies for the fourth grade, the beginning of the studies for fifth grade. And if you were out of sync like that, you graduated in January. And I wanted to get started on college as soon as possible. And from my reading, I felt like New England would be a good place, maybe, uh, and uh, uh, <laughs> um, because I'd heard about New England colleges, and uh, so I applied to uh, that New England college with February admissions, with the highest average college board scores. And that turned out to be Tufts, which I had never heard of. And I went there and, and I did discover, I, I am not a New Englander. <laughs> I'm halfway between a Texan and a New York Jew. Uh, and so, yeah, you talked about how you immersed into that uh, New York New York Jewish culture. That was very interesting. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, and then Harvard is, is, is the same. Uh, the best person to study with, I was told, was Stanley Schachter. So, okay, wherever he is, mm -hmm. not to be Columbia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's great advice, I think, right? That we can give to uh, psychology majors finishing their undergrad, thinking about grad school. A lot of people think, I'm sure this is my process too. They have their dream schools and then right. they have their backup schools. Right. And perhaps that's not the best way to think about it. Like you said, it's not so much the prestige of where you're going to get your degree, but who are you going to work with? That's most important. Right. And really, the only way you're going to find out, and that remains true today, <clears throat> is by talking to the people in your psychology department. You ask, you say, who would be, and, uh, you know, if it's developmental psychology, go to the developmental psychologist and say, well, this is, these following people would be the best people to work with. And once you get your acceptances in, then you, because they, they, they're, they're not going to, they're not 
going to be very much influenced by the reputation of the university in mm-hmm. their in their recommendations. They're they're going to be they're going to be the individuals or the quality of the whole program subspecialty in psychology. Yeah. So as a student, you should interview the school before you apply. It's not so much about begging to get into a school. Is that you have to get to know them, get to know the people there, and find out if it's a good fit. Well, you can only do it reputationally. I mean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really recommend visits necessarily. As a and it's hard to nowadays. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. You certainly. You know, these days you're forced to make a decision on a better basis, which is mm-hmm. reputation, because uh, you you know you're not, not going to learn. I mean, I actually chose Columbia in part because of my visit there, which was accidental. I never intended to go to Columbia once I got into Harvard. Um, But a friend of mine was going to look at the law school and said, you want to come with me? I said, yeah, I got admitted to psychology just for kicks. I'll visit. And I met McGuire, who was this incredibly brilliant person. And it it had a real, if I hadn't met him, I don't think just, the reputation of Stanley Schachter would have made me go there because I, I mean, I said I do, I wanted to be around this super smart person, mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. you know from reading my book, <laughs> wasn't necessarily the best person to be around. So, <laughs> uh, okay, well, thank you so much for spending the morning with me. I really enjoyed it. I was very nervous because it's almost as if I'm a fanboy, and you know, and I'm still a big fan, uh, and. I guess for the lack of a better word of the field of social psych, because I feel like it just applies everywhere. Mm-hmm. And even though I transitioned and I got my degree in counseling psychology, I remember my clinical training days, almost always using social psychological principles, even in therapy, right. With my clients. Yeah. And, and uh, just, just um, I always recommend when students ask me beyond intro to psych, what class should I take next? Hundred percent of the time, I say social psychology. Take social psychology, and uh, yeah, and, and I hope for those who do look in the reference section and look for Dr. Nisbet's name. You're going to see a lot of articles in there. <laughs> so again, thank you so much for your time, um, and good luck on your your journey in, in being a professor emeritus at University of Michigan, and good luck on your uh, with your book. It's wonderful. You. Okay. Hey there, thanks for listening to this podcast today. Can you do me a big favor? Um, Just so that this podcast gets heard by more students of psychology and other people interested in the field, uh, go to Apple Podcasts and put a little rating there if you like and uh, a brief uh, review, okay? And you can also contact me directly using the links in the description, whether it's Twitter or email, with any suggestions or feedback that you may have to make the show better. And uh, if there are any topics you want me to talk about, I can add them. And if you want to support me by buying me a coffee, the methods are listed in the description as well. Again, thanks and have a great day.